Reuben Sachs, A Sketch, by Amy Levi. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reuben Sachs, by Amy Levi, read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 18 A Thursday let it be. A Thursday tell her she shall be married to this noble earl. Romeo and Juliet The news of Bertie's proposal spread like fire in the family. Rose had a vision of bridesmaids' gowns and of belted earls at the wedding. Lionel and Sidney, who always knew everything without being told, scented wedding cake from afar, and indulged a great deal of chaff sotto voce at their cousin's expense. Adelaide was so excited when the news reached her that she flattened her nose with the handle of her parasol and exclaimed with her usual directness, "'I wonder if the Norwood people will receive her.' Like everyone else, she took for granted that Judith would not be allowed to let slip so brilliant an opportunity." A little maidenly hesitation, a little genuine reluctance, perhaps, for Bertie was not the man to take a girl's fancy, and Judith would give further proof of her good sense, would open her mouth and shut her eyes, and swallow what the fates had sent her. Poor Mrs. Quahano, greatly agitated, vibrated between the Walterton Road and Kensington Palace Gardens expending quite a little fortune on blue omnibuses. It took a long time for her brother to convince her that Bertie's spurious Judaism could for a moment be accepted as the real thing. "'He is not a Jew,' she reiterated obstinately. "'Would you let your own daughter marry him?' Israel Lunninger evaded the question. "'My dear Golda, he is as much a Jew as you or I.' Her father is perfectly satisfied, as well he may be. It is a brilliant match." Mrs. Lunninger realized perfectly the meaning of five thousand pounds a year. Bertie's other advantages, such, for instance, as his connection with the Norwoods, had little weight with her. If he had been one of the Cardozos or one of the Silberheims, the great Jewish bankers, she could have understood all this fuss about his family. "'Who are the girls to marry in these days?' Mrs. Sachs said later on, as she, Mrs. Quahano, and Mrs. Lunninger sat in consultation. "'If I had unmarried daughters, I should tell them they would have to marry Germans.' The extreme nature of this statement did not fail to impress her hearers. While the matrons sat in conclave in the primrose-coloured drawing-room, Judith, upstairs in her own little domain, was trying to come to a decision on the subject of their discussion. She had asked for time—for a few days in which to make up her mind, and of these three had already gone by. But from the first there had always been this thing in her mind, this thing from which she shrank that she would marry Bertie. Her loneliness, her utter isolation of spirit in that crowded house where she was for the moment a centre of interest, a mark of observation, are difficult to realise. A severance of home ties had been to a certain extent involved in her change of homes, 
her nearest approach to intimate women friends were Rose and Esther. As for the one friend who had wound his way into her reserved, exclusive soul, who had made a path into her enclosed, restricted life, he was her friend no more. Reuben, oh humiliation, had shown her plainly that he was afraid of her, afraid of any claims that she might choose to base on the friendship which had existed between them. There was always this thought in her mind, goading her. On the faces round her she could read nothing but anxiety that she would make up her mind without delay. She knew what was expected of her. Sometimes she thought she could have borne it better if someone had said outright, "'We know that you love Reuben, that Reuben loves you after a fashion, but it is no good crying for the moon. Take your half-loaf and be thankful for it.' It was this absolute, stony ignoring of all that had gone before which seemed to crush the life out of her. She was growing to feel that in loving Reuben she had committed a crime too shameful for decent people even to speak of. That Reuben had ever loved her, she now doubted. It had all been a chimera of the emotional female brain, of which Reuben, who was subject, as we know, to occasional lapses of taste, had often confided to her his contempt. Yet even now there were moments when, remembering all that had gone before, it seemed to her impossible that Reuben should do long without her. If she flew in the face of nature and said yes to Bertie, surely he would come forward and protest against such an outrage. Every day she devoured the scraps of news which the papers contained respecting the coming election at St. Baldwin's. Sometimes her mind dwelt on the splendours of the prospect held out before her, splendours which, in her ignorance, she was disposed to exaggerate. Reuben, climbing to those social heights which for herself she had always deemed inaccessible, Reuben, reaching the summit, would find her there before him. That would impress him greatly, she knew. Let this thought be forgiven her. Let it be remembered who was her hero, and how little choice there had been for her in the matter of heroes. Yet such are the contradictions of our nature that had the admirable Crichton stood before her, Don Quixote, or Sir Galahad himself, I cannot answer for Judith that she would not have turned from them to the mixed, imperfect human creature, Reuben Sachs. So she sat there, swaying this way and that, and then the door opened and her mother came in. Mrs. Quijano, we know, was not pleased at heart but she had become very anxious for the marriage. Judith listened passively, as the advantages of her future position were laid before her. Then she made her protest, fully conscious of its weakness. "'I do not like Mr. Lee Harrison.' "'Of course not,' said Mrs. Quijano. "'I should be sorry to hear that you did. No girl likes her intended, at first. Judith bowed her head, conscious, ashamed. Only that afternoon Rose had said to her, "'We all have to marry the men we don't care for. I shall, I know, though I have a lot of money. I am not sure that it is not best in the end.' And she sighed as a red-headed, cousinly vision rose before her mental sight. "'You are coming home with me,' went on Mrs. Quijano, 
when we can talk it over comfortably. You mustn't keep the poor man waiting much longer. Mrs. Lunninger came in as Judith was tying her bonnet strings. Judith is coming with me, said her mother. Aunt Ada drifted slowly across the room to where Judith was standing. She looked at her with her miserable eyes, rubbing her hands together as usual. "'You had better write to Mr. Lee Harrison before you go. You won't get such an opportunity as this every day.' Judith stared at her aunt in a sort of desperation. "'She, too? Aunt Ada, who all the days of her life had known wealth, splendour, importance, and, as far as could be seen, had never enjoyed an hour's happiness. She looked at the dejected, untidy figure with the load of diamonds on the fingers, the rich lace round the neck and wrists, the crumpled gown of costly silk. Aunt Ada still believed in these things, then, in diamonds, lace and silk, did not wring her hands and cry, All is vanity! Hers was truly an astonishing manifestation of faith. Judith sat in her father's study in the Walterton Road. On the desk before her lay the letter which she had written and sealed to Mr. Lee Harrison, containing her acceptance of his offer. A certain relief had come with the deed. She had opened up for herself a new field of action. She would be reinstated in the eyes of her world, in Reuben's eyes, in her own. She was so strong, so cruelly vital that it never for an instant occurred to her that she might pine and fade under her misery. She would have laughed to scorn such a thought. Not thus could she hope for escape. A new field of action—there lay her best chance. Her father came up to her and put his hand on her shoulder. He lifted her mournful glance to his. The kind, vague regard was inexpressibly soothing after the battery of eyes to which she had been recently exposed. "'I hope, my dear,' said Joshua Kahano, "'that you are quite happy in this engagement.' "'Oh, yes, papa,' answered Judith, but suddenly as she spoke the tears welled to her eyes and poured down her face. Such a display of feeling on her part was without precedent. Both father and daughter were exceedingly shy, though in neither case with that shyness which manifests itself in outward physical flutter. Mr. Quahano, deeply moved, stretched out his arms, and putting them about her, drew her close against him. "'My dear girl! My dear girl! Girl, you are not to do this, unless you are sure it is for your happiness. Remember, there is always a home for you here. You can always come back to us." She let her face lie on his breast, while tears flowed unchecked. His words, the kind, timid, caressing movements with which he accompanied them, were sweet to her, though in the depths of her heart she knew that there was no turning back. Material advantage—things that you could touch and see and talk about, that these were the only things which really mattered—had been the unspoken gospel of her life. Now and then you allowed yourself the luxury of a fine sentiment in speech, but when it came to the point, to take the best that you could get for yourself was the only course open to a person of sense. The push, 
the struggle, the hunger and greed of her world rose vividly before her. Wealth, power, success, a flaunting success for all men to see. Had she not believed in these things as the most desirable on earth? Had she not always wished them to fall to the lot of the person dearest to her? Did she not believe in them still? Was she not doing her best to secure them for herself? But she was Joshua Kuhano's daughter. Was it possible that she cared for none of these things? End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 The essence of love is kindness, and indeed it may be best defined as passionate kindness. R. L. Stevenson There is nothing more dear to the Jewish heart than an engagement, and when, four days after the events of the last chapter, that between Judith and Bertie was made public, congratulations flowed in, people called at all hours of the day, and the house in Kensington Palace Gardens presented a scene of cheerful activity and excitement. The community, after much discussion, much shaking of heads over the degeneracy of the times, had decided on accepting Bertie's veneer of Judaism as the real thing, and the engagement was treated like any other. If Mr. Lee Harrison had continued in the faith of his fathers, this would not have been the case. Though both engagement and marriage would, in a great number of instances, have been countenanced, their recognition would have been less formal and public, and of course a fair proportion of Jews would never have recognized them at all. As it was, the brilliancy of the match was considered a little dimmed by the fact of Bertie's not being of the Semitic race. It showed indifferent sportsmanship, if nothing else, to have failed in bringing down one of the wily sons of Shem. The Samuel Saxes came over at the first opportunity to wish joy, as they themselves express it, and inspect the new fiancé. It is possible that they were not well received for Netta gave out subsequently, whenever the Lee Harrisons were in question, "'We don't visit. Mamma doesn't approve of mixed marriages.' The day on which the engagement was announced happened also to be that of the election, and in the course of the afternoon Adelaide burst in, much excited by the double event. "'An overwhelming majority!' she cried. "'Reuben is in by an overwhelming majority!' Then, going to Judith, she gave her a sounding kiss. "'I am so glad, dear,' she said gushingly. Judith submitted to this display of affection with a good grace. For the last four days she had been living in a dream, a dream peopled by phantoms who went and came, spoke and smiled, and had about them as much reality as the figures of a magic lantern. As before Bertie's proposal, she had been too much preoccupied to be much aware of him, so now she continued to accept his attention in the same spirit of amiable indifference and unconsciousness. Bertie, as Gwendolen Harleth said of Grandcourt, was not disgusting. He took his love, as he took his religion, very theoretically. There was something not unpleasant in the atmosphere of respectful devotion with which he contrived to surround her. "'Where is your young man?' went on Adelaide, 
taking a seat close to Judith, and noting with admiration the rich colour in her face, the wonderful brilliance of her eyes. She felt very friendly towards the girl, who was safely out of her brother's way, and was doing so remarkably well for herself. Afterwards she observed to her husband, "'Judith looked quite good-looking. I always say there's nothing like being engaged for improving a girl's complexion.' "'Am I my young man's keeper?' answered Judith, lightly. "'But I believe he is at Christie's.' "'Then can you come and dine with us?' went on Adelaide, who had never asked Judith to dinner before. "'I will get some pleasant people to meet you. You shall choose your own night. Reuben must come as well, if he is not too jealous.' Adelaide did not mean to be cruel. She honestly believed that before the solid reality of an engagement such vapour as unspoken, unacknowledged feeling must at once have melted, and Judith was beyond being hurt by her words. I don't know exactly when we can come. Blanche Chemist wants us to go down there for a day or two next week, and we are half-promised to Geraldine Sydenham for the week after." She pronounced these distinguished names thus familiarly with a secret amusement, a sense that there was really a great deal of fun to be got out of Adelaide. Mrs. Cohen stared open-mouthed, frankly impressed. She had no idea that Bertie's people would come round without any difficulty in that way, and visions of herself and Monty, honoured guests at Norwood Towers, began to dance before her mental vision. Esther, noting the little comedy, smiled to herself. She had perhaps a clearer view of Judith's state of mind than any one else. Judith, indeed, had almost succeeded in banishing thought during the last few days. The persistent questions—what will Reuben think? When will he know? were the nearest approach to thought she had allowed herself. Rose, who was thoroughly enjoying the engagement, had confided to Judith that, once married, she would be all right, came in at this point, and in her turn was made acquainted with the results of the election. "'Reuben comes back to-night by the last train, the twelve-fifteen, added Mrs. Cohen. Judith thought he knows now. Lady Chemist would certainly have told him what that morning had been a public fact. People streamed in and out all the afternoon, greatly disappointed at not finding Bertie. At six, Judith, at the instigation of Rose, went to dress for dinner. Bertie had announced his intention of coming early. As she shut the drawing-room door behind her, the muscles of her face relaxed. She stood a moment at the foot of the stairs like a figure of stone. Mrs. Sachs, emerging from Mr. Lunninger's private room, where she had been imparting the news of her son's triumph, came upon her thus. "'My dear!' she cried, going up to her. Judith roused herself at once, and held out her hand with the comedy smile which she had learned to wear these last few days. Mrs. Sachs looked up at her, curiously moved. "'My dear, I have to congratulate you. And I congratulate you, Mrs. Sachs.' Their eyes met. Hitherto Judith had been too proud to make the least advance to Reuben's mother, to respond even to any advance the latter might choose to make. But things were changed between them now. She looked down at the sallow face, the shrewd eyes lifted to hers, almost, it seemed, in depreciation, in sympathy almost. 
Her beautiful face quivered. Stooping forward, she pressed her lips with sudden passion on the other's wrinkled cheek. End of chapter 18